Welcome to the Growth Gap Podcast, where we chat with CEOs, investors, and other key industry leaders to uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. In this episode, we chat with Peter Aerosmith, a general partner of JMI Equity and a top 25 software investor of 2020. JMI is a leading growth equity firm focused on helping founders and management teams in scaling their software companies. The firm is well-equipped to do so given its long and focused track record in software, which goes all the way back to its founding and lead backer, John Moores, the founder and former chairman and CEO of BMC Software. Notably, JMI has raised over $4 billion since it was founded in 1992. Over the years, the firm has invested in over 150 businesses, participated in 19 IPOs, and completed over 100 exits. Peter and I chat about how the growth equity space has evolved over time, what they look for in investment opportunities, and how JMI helps the companies it invests in. We hope you enjoy the show. Peter, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Really excited to you know spend some time together and, and learn a, a little bit more about yourself and, and JMI. So maybe what we could do for the benefit of our audience is hear a little bit about JMI as well as yourself. Yeah, terrific. Thanks for, RJ, thanks for having me. And again, congrats on all your all success. So I'm a partner at JMI Equity. I've been at JMI since 1996 when I joined the firm as an associate. A year later, I moved and helped open our West Coast office here in San Diego, California. Today, we're investing out of JMI 9. We've over the years, we've raised over $4 billion of capital to invest the same strategy since the firm was founded in 1992, RJ, which is to invest in growth stage software and software-related services companies. We have offices on each coast, one in Baltimore, one in San Diego. Our strategy is geographic agnostic. So I think we're up to 27 states and three or four provinces in Canada and a handful of countries in Western Europe where we've made investments. So we're, we're, where we play is in the, squarely in the growth equity stage. So we don't take a lot of technology risk from at the stage we invest in, but we, we take a lot of you know, continued market development risk and continued execution risk. I mean, that's how we think about where we play. And we try to focus on companies where there's demonstrable evidence of good product market fit and demonstrable evidence that products are solving hard problems, delivering real value, and therefore the markets they're targeting ought to buy more of, of their product uh, over time. But we're squarely business-to-business software investors. We, do not, we don't really invest in uh, B2C companies. It's uh, almost all B2B, and, and the average check size today is roughly $50 million, and we do both minority and majority investing. Got it. That's very helpful. And I've had the uh, fortune of interacting with your team quite a bit over the years and, and just hearing about JMI from others in the industry. And, and, and JMI has, has, has long had a very strong reputation in the growth equity space. And, and so it's great to chat with you, someone who's been with the firm and helped grow it over a long period of time. You know, I guess it, it, it's unique to, to speak to someone who's, you know, really been both at the front end of the growth equity industry, but as well as, you know, building a firm. Would would love to hear about your thoughts on how the growth equity industry has 
evolved and, and where you think it's headed? Yeah. So look, here's when we started, uh, you know, it was a small fund. Therefore, we didn't write big checks. But our strategy has always been to find companies that had established themselves far enough along for us to have confidence that what they were doing, the problems they were solving were, were big enough and, and clear enough that you could go build a real business around them. What's evolved in our world of B2B software is for 40 years, software has grown, you know, 8% a year, right? And so if you think about hanging out in the software world, you get 8% growth with, you know, kind of U.S. economy risk. And so that's a good place to hang out. The other piece that's re- a handful of things have changed over my years, and it is one. The other one is, you know, the software business model has shifted, right? When I first started investing in this business, in these businesses, excuse me, RJ, it was all licensed maintenance, almost all licensed maintenance. There were some transactional recurring revenue businesses, payroll, transaction processing, things like that. But now 95% of what we invest in is 90% or above recurring revenue businesses, right? And so the good news about those is they're just hardier businesses. The other good news as a growth, putting my growth equity hat on for a second is they, they take a bit longer to grow. They take a li- bit longer to be established. And therefore, the opportunities to get involved as an investor, I think, have, have widened, right? The, the, the time period to get involved. And then the last bit is our asset class has become a, a place where we can get lots of capital to work in liquidity transactions. So we can get more money to work, RJ, in transactions that aren't dilutive. Right. So we just invested in a company where we it's a low teens business growing very fast, breaking even tons of runway still ahead of it. Founder is retiring and we were able to buy, you know, put a fair amount of money to work into something that's growing really fast. 10, 15 years ago, that didn't exist. Right. You, you would either be doing a little bit of liquidity, you put some money on the balance sheet, you wouldn't get as much money to work. But we are we're, we're able to get a lot of money to work and really good assets with all the characteristics that we like. And that's happening, as you know, across the asset class, right, whether it's venture into growth and obviously in the buyout business. So those are some of the changes as we like to you know, we talk about at our boards, companies can persevere and shareholders can change. When I started, you either had to go public or, or get bought by a strategic. And now this notion of growth equity giving founders liquidity or employees liquidity or even early angels or, sh- or, or venture firms liquidity along the way, and then buyout firms giving growth equity firms liquidity along the way. The, the liquidity market, the capital markets for growth stage software companies is extremely productive. And therefore, executives and management teams can have really long careers with the same company and build a ton of shareholder value. And the shareholders can switch seats over time as they may need liquidity for their own business. So I'll pause there. But that, those are some of the things that have really changed. And what's been consistent and knock on wood for JMI and, and, and others similar to us in, in the software business, turns out it's been a really good place to hang our hat. Software has been a great market, as I said, for 40 years since its inception. The business models have terrific unit economics. The markets grow in total at 8%. So the cloud 
the SaaS cloud market grows significantly faster than that, and then subsectors underneath grow faster than that. So if you when you find these pockets, you can get real growth with terrific unit economics in really good markets. So I'll pause there. I apologize. It's you can tell I'm excited about it, but it's a uh, I, I said a lot. Yeah, no, we we spend a, a lot of time as well, just you know, thinking and and working in the the whole software space, you know, via kind of the capital markets. But you know, one thing that's I think really interesting is just the number of players, the number of growth equity firms out there. And you have more kind of coming in off of you know maybe hedge funds doing crossover. Or, or I should just say, you know, public investors crossing over into doing more privates. But the overall pool of capital seems to be expanding. How should, you know, as a CEO of a software company, when they're thinking about bringing in outside capital and they're trying to make sense of kind of the landscape of, of capital providers, how do you differentiate or, you know, articulate the difference of, JMI versus the other funds that are out there? Yeah, it's a good question. And first thing I'll say is, you know, knock on wood, the industry, as I mentioned, is big enough, meaning the software business is big enough that there's and fragmented enough, right? So the number of companies that are successful today, the number of opportunities for investors like JMI, for angels, and most importantly, for entrepreneurs and executives to be successful. And the number is is a staggeringly large number, right? Huge industry, lots of fragmentation, lots of reasons for that that won't change going forward in our opinion. As we think about how we differentiate or how we think about adding value to our portfolio companies is where I would start, right? So we are, you know, we're writing eight, eight new investments a year on average, RJ. Every investment we make, we're going to allocate significant resource. We've got an operating team that will add significant resource to those investments. And where we really try to help focus is, look, 30 years later of doing this, lots of scar tissue, lots of mistakes made, lots of lessons learned. We will try to provision those in a way that is tailored to each investment specifically. Right, every company has slightly different needs as they're growing. A common need is they've typically gotten to where we invest with a, a management team that's not fully built out. So what we're going to help there, our network, our uh, lots of lessons learned on recruiting. There's operational opportunities. Oftentimes, as an example, a company will be has grown with kind of one go-to-market strategy. That's either typically an outbound strategy or an inbound marketing strategy. We will help them round that out over time. A lot of our companies, almost every one of them, will make some investment through acquisition along the way. We'll bring a bunch of expertise to bear, one on structuring, two on execution, and then three on post-acquisition execution, right? And Man, that's a that's a great place to make mistakes if you're not careful, right? And then finally, uh, you know, we ask all we ask CEOs who we're going to partner with and invest and talk to people we've been, we've worked with over 30 years, find out what we're like to work with. We urge people to do that. We're gonna, we're we're involved, but we're also very respectful that we're we're investors and board members and helpers. We're not operators. 
that's very helpful. And you know, from now sw- switching gears a little bit back to kind of growing a, a growth equity firm, we have a fair amount of your peers that kind of you know listen in on the podcast as, as well as other kind of investment professionals. But it's a difficult thing, kind of you know, being able to to grow a firm and do so well and have some kind of continuity in the team. And, and I've seen that you've, you've been able to do that very well. Whereas, you know, s- some firms may, may struggle, you know, with turnover or just a lack of cohesiveness. What, what do you think the key is to, to building a, a strong firm? That's a wonderful question. I, look, I give a ton of credit to my founding partner, Harry Gruner, who's still one of our managing partners and our other managing partner, Paul Barber, who've both been, you know, Harry since the beginning Paul since the, the, the late 90s. So continuity of leadership has been one. I think focus on building a culture and a consistent culture that we both recruit for and reward over time has been super important. And I would say, you know, the number one kind of lesson learned for I think all of us would be, you know, you want to build the firm, but you want to do it at a somewhat thoughtful pace. And I, you know, we could have raised more money along the way. I think Harry's been thoughtful and Paul have been thoughtful around. You can only, you can only be so good as how much capital you can get to work in a way that's productive for your investors, right? And that's going to be really driven by how many people you have. So we really think about, we have thought about over time growing the firm based on, frankly, how many check writing partners we have. And like there's, there's formulaic un, kind of underneath that you can imagine, but it's not getting too far ahead of yourself from how many good investments and how many companies any one partner can can lead and any one partner can add value to. But this this notion of a consistent culture, how we conduct ourselves, how we do diligence, how we interact with our portfolio companies, how we represent ourselves in the marketplace is has been and will continue to be super important to all of us. You know, one thing I noticed in, in your profile uh, up on your website, you have a tremendous track record and just the, you know, the caliber of, of companies that you've, you've invested in is, is, is excellent. So how have you been, and, and, you know, it's a difficult thing to do that, you know, consistently over time. How have you been able to kind of identify these software company stars and, and it, are there kind of like one or two key attributes that you always look for when you're making an investment decision? Yeah, it's a great question. So look, from the beginning, we've been a proactively oriented firm. So most of what we invest in has been most of those companies, the vast majority, RJ, we've built a relationship before they decided to raise money. All right. So that's number one. We have to be proactive, right? We have to be in the marketplace building relationships with what we think are the best companies. We have to understand all the niches that make up software, right? We don't invest at the functional area level. All of our companies may fall into a functional area, but we don't say, hey, let's go find a sales and marketing software company. It's it's down four layers of specificity into the niche. We've got to know what's going on in that niche. We got to have conviction that that niche is one that's relevant and has long a long trajectory of growth. And then look, at the end of the day, we're, we're growth stage investors. We have to see what we like to call undeniable momentum in the business, 
where we're squinting to see growth is typically where we're not going to participate. And, you know, that's, that's a, then there's other DNA markers around a business, you know, product market fit is super important to us, right? Is it abundantly clear that there is a demonstrable value in what this company, any one company does through the eyes of its customers, right? And is that something that is relevant to a large enough set of customers? And that's, look, we're, We've made a lot of money in good investments in horizontal investments, right? Covering any one industry. We've made a lot of money in good investments in vertical. And in each, in each one of those situations, we bring a slightly different you know, set of goggles to look at them. But the, those attributes are pretty consistent regardless of kind of market size or undeniable momentum, really strong product market fit. And then ultimately, the most important is with a group of people and team that we want to partner with. And, and are there certain niches that you are, you know, really excited about or, or you know, maybe even emerging niches that you think are going to have a lot of momentum going forward? Yeah, look, I think the number, the sort of at its, at the highest level, what, what the theme we just continue to see reinforced every day we're in the market talking to people is the business to business cloud adoption is still early. And I, we like to, I call it the long tail of business automation, right? And so the business processes that used to be automated with paper or, a, or Excel or Word or whatever it may be are, are getting attacked through, you know, third-party applications in the cloud. And so where we, where we are finding a ton of opportunity is in these business processes that are now for the first time being automated and they're they're being automated not just in enterprise or even small or in mid-market but they're being automated up and down the size company stack and they're and that is something that the cloud has enabled that is something that the SaaS business model that allows companies to get value quickly has enabled and so as you there, that le- that's led us to, you know, lots and lots and lots and of uh, of investments and in niches. There's also clearly opportunity when you're 40 years into a market to do replacement, right? And so we look for are there next generation technologies that are are attacking old problems, either for up against tired competitors or in parts of the market that are newer to adopt. So that could be mid market that you know. That used, to, that used to use Excel to automate something is now going to use third party, or that could be into the enterprise where you're going to bring next, next generation best of breed to bear. We're coming up on time here, but maybe one last question, if, if I may. You know, I'd love to uh, talk about kind of challenging times that folks have faced and, and how they were able to overcome it. So is, is there a time that it could be related to you know, investing, it could be related to kind of a, a company in particular that you were trying to help out. We find that this is kind of beneficial for, for certain members of our audience who who are helping to, to scale or grow a business as we speak. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on, on kind of a challenging time and, and how you were able to kind of push through. Uh, it's a terrific question. Thank you for asking it, RJ. 10 months later, I've got to tell you, I am more impressed by the resiliency of the companies 
we're either invested in or we are talking to or we know about in the marketplace. I just have a ton of respect for how teams, employees, individual contributors, leaders in the sort of uh, commercial markets have responded to what has been a challenging, challenging time. And obviously, the space we invest in has been part of some of, of helping solve problems, right? Distance learning, distance working, Zoom being the obvious, we're not an investor, obviously, but being the obvious example of that. But but more importantly to me is the resiliency of people working. They're working from home. They may have families. They may have parents who need help. They may have ch- you know three children trying to learn on Zoom, which is you know not how any of us really should be learning. And I'm just really impressed by how our teams and the other and other companies I know have have sort of answered the bell, proven resilient, and it just makes me you know, incredibly proud to be a, a, a small member of that overall sort of economy. From, a, from an investing point of view, look, I think distance work and the reality we're all living in now has only, you know, heightened the awareness of the importance of using technology in a thoughtful way. And clearly the markets are, are rewarding that. And, 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 you know, like everybody has a sense for that. But to me, just going back to, I'm, I'm just incredibly impressed and, and proud of how folks have responded. And it just is a true testament to the entrepreneurial drive and, and, and the commercial drive that, uh, that we see every day. Great. Well, P- Peter, thank you so much for, for taking the time. I know our audience will find this uh, very insightful. Well, congrats on all your success, RJ. Thank you so much for the time. We'll talk to you real soon.